everybody, and welcome to Snescapades, a chronological journey through the North American Super Nintendo library, four games at a time. We play them briefly, judge them harshly, and rank them, and that's pretty much all you need to know. I'm Steampunk Link. And I'm Emmy Zero. And we've got quite a selection of games here. I'm very excited about today. You know what? I feel like we say this every episode, but I have a feeling this is going to be our best episode. You know, it might well be. This is, I think, the largest concentration of noteworthy games that we've had since, I don't know, maybe the first episode, frankly. This is a really stacked list of games here, and uh, I think that they have a chance to really kind of shake up the ranking that we have going on right now. So I'm really curious to see how this goes, because there's some Stone Cold legends in this in this list today. I think we'll see a little bit of shaking up on both ends of the list, quite frankly. Uh, yeah, we, we might well, actually, now that you mention it. Yeah. Let's go ahead and get into this. We are still in November of 1991. There were a lot of games that came out that month. Yeah, we're not going to be done with November for a little while, so, you know, Newsy's going to be taking a break. Maybe we'll find something else for him to do eventually. I don't know. I mean, when you really think about it, this is going to kind of be the norm, right? I mean, we're going to start getting into years where a hundred or more games came out, but we're still only going to have 12 months. You're right. We might need to find some other means of keeping him gainfully employed because otherwise some other retro games podcast is just going to snap him up. He's that good. You can't have him, Bob Mackey. No, no, he's ours. He's ours. You guys over there, at that other one, you stay away. So after that little tangent, what do we have up first? Up first, we have another side-scrolling shooter, Darius Twin. Darius Twin. Maybe Darius Twin, but I'm going to go with Darius Twin. This one was developed and published by Taito. So this is the third in the Darius series. Both of the original Darius games were arcade games, and Darius, the original Darius, came out in... You guessed it, the 80s! 1987 to be exact. Oh, we're still doing that. Yay. Uh, I think that's the last one. I I don't think I want to do that anymore. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, in any case, uh, Darius was the first game to have a three-screen-wide cabinet. So they accomplished the effect by taking three screens and mirrors and positioning the mirrors just right so that you get this really nice, seamless screen. I've heard about that, but I've never seen it. I've always kind of wanted to see one of those crazy wide boys like that did you ever play like konami's x-men with the six-player cabinet no i never saw that oh that okay. x-men game i never got a chance to play until it uh showed up on like xbox live in the middle of the last decade i had definitely seen those but i didn't entirely know how they created the effect anyway uh we're not here to talk about x-men kind of a tangent yeah we're, we're here to talk about darius twin which is a super nintendo horizontally scrolling shooter this is noteworthy for being the first proper co-op game on the system that's right we've been kind of complaining about this that there's a lot of games with two-player but it's always alternating and even games that had simultaneous two-player in their arcade versions had that stripped out for the home version this one though doesn't do that another thing this one doesn't do that i think is pretty noteworthy this is the first game of this type that we've played that doesn't seem to suffer from extensive slowdown 
And one reason for that is probably that this was actually built for the Super Nintendo specifically. Even though the originals were in arcades, this is not a port of an arcade game. This was just a Darius game for the Super Nintendo. The game has since been ported to the Wii and Wii U. I was reading a little bit about it. I read a review from somebody at Nintendo Life talking about how he suspects the reason for the game playing as smoothly as it does is that it's a little bit less difficult than other games because there's not quite as much going on. But I imagine he kept going on to say, meh, meh, I'm so good at shooter games. I'm so much better than Steampunk League at them. I bet that's exactly what he said. Uh, I think you're right. I'm sure. Which is to say, I didn't find this game easy by any stretch, did you? No, I cranked the uh, number of lives up to the maximum, and I made it to the boss of the second level. So that's as good as I did. I could probably do better if I played more of it. Two things I really like about this game. For one, it does restart you instantly when you die. You just get to kind of come back with your next life. So it doesn't make you restart from a checkpoint. And for the most part, you get to keep your power-ups. So it doesn't have that death spiral failure cascade that we complained about with Super R-Type and Gradius 3. I think that makes it more manageable to get further. This game also does not have continues, which is a little unfortunate, but actually not outside the ordinary for this genre on this system at this point. But I found myself a lot less frustrated playing this, and I do think because the screen is a little less busy. I find this game very readable, which I really like. I never had a problem judging where my hitbox was for the ship. The ship was small enough I could maneuver around all the other stuff on the screen pretty easily and at least in the levels that i played the game is less interested in putting a bunch of environmental stuff in your way that you have to maneuver around while you're shooting things i found this a smoother play experience than i was expecting to for sure i think it plays really really well and i think that what you were talking about being able to restart right from where you died right away and not from a checkpoint and the fact that you get to keep your power ups we see developers starting to say okay this is a home console it's not an arcade let's lose some of the design philosophy that was made to gobble up quarters so that this can be a more enjoyable experience at home. And I think also those choices would make this game a lot better to play as a co-op game as well. Absolutely. Yeah, smartly designed. I think the game looks good. If you're not super familiar with Darius as a series, you may have still seen some of these enemy designs before, because this is the one where a lot of the enemies look like big robot fish. Specifically, the bosses all look like coelacanths and bass that are that are just made out of bunches of mechanical parts shooting lasers out of their fish mouths at you all of that kind of stuff yeah i really appreciated in this sort of era where a lot of shooters were starting to look kind of samey that they found a design that's really colorful and really unique that works that doesn't rely on just going for absolute like weird gross out stuff this has less of the like hr giger influence than uh than, than the other games that uh, we've played. Yeah, yeah, so... Yes, definitely um, Gradius, yeah. This game also has a uh, an interesting level select mechanic, kind of like Star Fox, in a way. After each level, you are taken to a grid with branching paths that go to one of two levels, so you can kind of pick which route you're going to take through the game to some extent. Because that means that if you're, you're kind of banging your head against a wall on one level, you can always try the alternate option, and it does give the game some more replay value. While we're on the Star Fox comparison, one thing I didn't really like about this that also felt a little bit Star Foxy that doesn't work in the context of a scrolling shooter like it would a rail shooter is the fact that the enemies kind of pop out of 
any part of the screen. They can appear behind you, above you. And sometimes you feel like you're just getting killed in a really cheap way. And you kind of have to rely on memorization of the enemy pattern. That's one thing I I liked a little bit less. That's kind of true. And I mean, I think that that is a part of this kind of game that some people get into. But I'm not a huge fan of that either. The idea of kind of like learning the levels intimately so that you kind of do this sort of choreographed dance with them where you know that this is the part where you have to get over here or the the boss is going to come down from the top of the screen and i do wish in particular with the bosses that it would give you like a warning arrow for which side of the screen the boss is going to be coming from but other than that i I do think this is a really solid experience and and i mean that's saying something because we've already played so many of these kinds of games yeah no for sure i think i'm ready to talk about where this can go on the list i don't think this goes quite as high as un squadron i do still think that is sort of in a class by itself as far as these kinds of games go on the system but obviously the points of comparison we've been making throughout this section gradius 3 and super r-type are kind of clumped together i think this is definitely better than super r-type do you you agree with that i would agree with that i think that my issues with super r-type do still stand mainly the fact that the sprite for the ship is just too big in that game and it makes it unreasonably hard to play and also that it has very bad slowdown whereas i don't think gradius 3 quite has that going on but i do still think that it has issues that i personally would rank darius twin above gradius it's a tough call for me because i really like the weapon power-up systems in gradius 3 and and darius twin maybe lacks a little bit in that area you know that's true actually gradius 3 is is maybe a more interesting design in that way i would definitely be willing to hear arguments that darius goes above gradius because it does play a lot smoother and it's got that co-op i think there are good arguments for either of those just edging out the other i feel like the question that i have boils down to this does the fact that Darius, even if it is somewhat less ambitious in terms of the way the power-ups work and the way the actual game is designed in terms of like moment-to-moment play, does that matter in comparison to the fact that it does have co-op and that it runs just I, I think an order of magnitude better one thing that we are kind of leaving out in this conversation a little bit was what we talked about earlier the fact that when you die you just immediately start back up where you left off and you get to keep your power-ups like all those little quality of life improvements shine through as a game that was built for the super nintendo i think we should put this above gradius 3 i would put it above gradius 3 now that i'm kind of talking this yeah I, I think i'll put it above gradius 3 do you think SimCity's the ceiling or do you think this is better than SimCity? It's tough to say. It's always really tough when the genres are so different. Yeah, I know. I don't know how you compare these games, frankly. We could actually maybe use the same argument about something being fitted specifically to the system to maybe put Darius above SimCity, just because even though SimCity is a very clever and very like kind of thoughtful conversion of a PC game, it still is sort of noticeable that a controller is not necessarily the optimal way to play that kind of yeah, game. Yeah, I think this might go above SimCity. Yeah, I think so. And, th- and then we've got F-Zero above that. It might go above F-Zero. F-Zero is only a one-player game. <laughs> it's a one-player game in a genre that feels like it's missing something without having a second player available. We've been talking about this one for a while now. I would be comfortable just putting this below UN Squadron and saying that this is our new number three. How do you feel? 
Yeah, I think that's fair. It's interesting. We now have kind of two clumps of shooters on here. Uh, we have the upper bracket with UN Squadron and Darius Twin, and then we have the lower one with Gradius and Super R-Type. They're all good. They're, They're all, all good. good is They're the all thing. good. Yeah. So yeah, congratulations to Darius Twin, our new number three game on the list. All right. So ooh, that one, that was a tough one. That was a surprisingly tough one. Yeah. You know what I think is going to be a little bit less tough? What? Our next game. Combat basketball. Yeah. This one's got an interesting history to it. Well, kind of interesting. So I was doing some research on it, trying to get to the bottom of like who made this. Maybe because I felt like somebody has to be responsible for this. Who did this? Who made this? So I'd been seeing Hudson's name all over it. But then I also came across a name, Houston Consultants. I've never heard of that company before. Who on earth is Houston Consultants? You know, I was looking that up. And in doing more research, I also found another developer called The Evil Three. And I'm like, well, who on earth is that? So here's what I think happened. This game was originally developed by this small company, The Evil Three, who, according to Moby Games, only have two other games to their credit, and was published by Houston Consultants, which is a British publisher. This was only released in Europe. Future Basketball was the name of this game. Uh, this was released back in 1990. Hudson, I think, just did a really, really quick and dirty port job on this, put Bill Lamebeer's name on it. And that's important. He, literally just his name and a picture of him on the title screen. Uh, nothing else about the game seems to reference him in any way. They thought this game would be a good fit for him because he was kind of known for... He was a bad boy, right? He was a, he was a rough basketball player he was you've got this futuristic basketball league where everybody's just hitting each other hey this is a perfect fit for this guy so the story the, the quote story i love the game this now, by the way i, I really love this yeah he became the head of the nba or something like that and changed all the rules and fired all the refs yeah in like 2037 he like made fouls totally legal he introduced the idea that you can have weapons on the court for some reason everybody is also cyborgs now but they're still out of bounds they're still out of bounds and they're still back court well so. you gotta have rules i mean you know we're not animals here we're just fine with <laughs> I, I playing. guess we're, we're just fine with putting landmines on the field now landmines punch a guy in the face but uh, come on don't go out of bounds let's yeah be reasonable um, anyway, so yeah, so that is the just ridiculous story. The game tries to kind of shoehorn into this already existing thing. So the game itself. Let's talk about the way this game actually plays. The perspective you have is a like completely top-down perspective on the basketball court. The players are color-coded by team, but otherwise utterly indistinguishable from each other. They are all exactly the same looking. They have exactly the same animations. It's impossible to tell any players apart from each other. And I think that having the, the perspective be totally top-down, at least for me, does some really annoying things with the readability of the game in places. It's, it's a very pick-up-and-play game. It's a very simple game to play. If the player on your team has the ball, you're controlling that player. If the opposite team has the ball, whatever player of yours is closest 
to the player with the ball is the one you're controlling. And that just kind of switches on the fly. One thing to this game's credit is that I never felt like I was controlling the wrong character. I never felt like, no, I need to be controlling this guy. What are you doing, game? Yeah, it's true. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. There's a couple of different options here. You can play a single game. Here's a team. There's another team. Go nuts. The other option is to play in the league where you select a team and the teams all have really fun and good names. And then you have a set of players that all have different stats and you can even trade players. The players all appear to be like cyborgs or like robots that were manufactured by different companies. The thing about this though is that as far as I can tell, you can like switch the positions the players are in, you can do all of that stuff. I can't see any difference in how any player behaves from another, which in a way is kind of good because it's impossible to actually distinguish between them on the field. So I don't even know why that stuff is there in this game. It just seems like really weird, unnecessary detail that make the game seem like it's deeper than it is because as it stands, the actual experience of playing this game to me felt just like the most basic arcadey basketball game you could have. This game definitely feels like it's got roots in that very, very basic arcade early basketball game. The original game, Future Basketball, came out for the Atari ST and the Amiga in 1990. So even by then, really, like there wasn't any excuse for it to be this simplified. Yeah, there are a couple of weapons on the field, like there are mines and this weird buzzsaw thing. I think there's some kind of power capsule, but I couldn't really figure out what any of that stuff was supposed to do, aside from kind of momentarily slowing down your player. I think that this game looks like it was made in a, the most lazy way I can imagine. Hudson did very little to make it something more than that when it ported it. Like, everything about it just feels lazy. You know, one thing that I kept having trouble with was the mechanics with the ball. Like I could get the ball just fine from my opponent, but it was so difficult to just shoot it. Like, I would shoot the ball towards the net, but my player would... He would just sort of pass it to nobody, right? Right, exactly. And I I couldn't figure out what I was doing wrong. I think I figured out what this is, actually. Mm -hmm. I think you have to be stationary to make a shot. Oh, is that what it is? This is another thing. There is one button. There's a button that will make you do, like, kind of a diving shove that makes your your player look like a sugar glider. (laughs) If you get the ball from doing that, that same button will either pass the ball if you're moving, or it'll try to shoot the ball if you're not moving. This game was made for microcomputers and for a system that has four face buttons on the controller. Y'all decided to use one button for everything. That's another aspect of this that feels really lazy to me is that they couldn't even map shoot and pass to different buttons. Yeah, just everything about this just feels, hey, we're just doing the barest minimum to make a game. It's really bad. The only thing I can say for it is like, at least it is playable. I mean, it is playable. The side effect of it being so simple is that it's extremely playable. Well, I say extremely, but real confusion about what that one context-sensitive button even does. So I guess it's time to talk ranking. So the lowest sport game that we have on our list right now is at number 16 out of 18, which is Super Bases Loaded, and I think this is easily worse than that. Yeah, I agree. It it felt much more fleshed out, and it was at least trying a lot harder in terms of presentation than this is. Then we have the Chess Master. Which is functional, but... That's kind of all you can say about it. These two are kind of comparable in a way, because you've got 
a very simple, very functional product at the end of the day. It's a little bit unfair to build lame beer because it's basketball and chess is chess. And with chess, you don't need as much to make it a good chess experience. Maybe if I could actually see more of my player than just the top of his mohawked head, you know, maybe I would be a little bit more generous. But as it sits, I just think this is kind of ugly and I think it belongs below Chess Master. At the very least, Chess Master has the quite competent chess AI going for it. So yeah, I think this is this is worse than Chess Master. That means we got one more game on the list right now. <laughs> Folks, we have a battle for the bottom right now. Here's the big question that we need to answer. Ultraman's presentation is considerably better than Bill Lambier's, I think. Like, That's at least true. I can respect the art that went into it, even though I don't think it's terribly impressive. There was still effort put in, which is more than I can say for Bill Lambier's combat basketball. But the real reason why Ultraman is at the bottom is just because of its utterly wrong-headed, incomprehensible design choice for how that game actually plays. Ultraman is, quite frankly, almost an unplayable mess of a game. Bill Lane Beer at least has the fundamentals of its basketball mechanics down. Even though going into this, I was kind of thinking like, oh yeah, this is definitely a worse game than Ultraman. I think I would rather spend time playing Bill Lane Beer's combat basketball than Ultraman, just because it is a much more playable thing, even if it is ugly as sin. Uh, I think I'm with you. It's not a good basketball game by any stretch of the imagination, but it is, at the end of the day, just a very simple version of that game with a couple of little extra flourishes and terrible presentation. At the very least, Bill Lane Beer also has a two-player option so that you and friend can at least have fun making fun of the game together as you're playing it, which you can't do with Ultraman. No, that's true. And it is entirely possible that Bill Lane Beer gets at least a little bit more fun if you're playing against another person. Yeah, I, I think I'm pretty comfortable putting this between the Chess Master and Ultraman. Bill Lane Beer's Combat Basketball Top 20 Game hit number 18. Top 20 Game. <laughs> Don't uh, don't get comfortable, Bill. You're not going to be there for that long. No, no, certainly not, because uh, we've got the first of, of two bangers coming up right That's here. That's right. This is going to be interesting. Will we have more to say about the two games coming up than we did about the games that we just talked about? Because we had, I think, surprisingly lengthy discussions about both of these. I'm really curious about how much time it's going to take us to sort out what we think specifically about these two games well i feel like i've been issued a challenge <laughs> let's go then uh with the first game up well third game up i should say Razor, developed by Quintet Company, published by Enix, which of course would go on to merge with Square, which uh, we'll talk about them in just a bit. We sure will. This game, Act Razor, is something that I've always been really interested in, but I've never, before playing it for this show, had never spent a tremendous amount of time with. And you spent even more time with it for this show than, than I did. I want to talk about this really quick, because this is something interesting that happened that had not happened up until now, and I, I question how many times this will happen throughout the course of this podcast series. But I actually managed to play through this game 
to completion in a couple of hours. It didn't take very long. You didn't intend to do that. No, either, not really. You? you just sort of sat down to play some of it and you were and you kind of just kept playing. It's a really nice tight experience. It's got a lot of stuff going on. It's it's basically two games in one. Let's describe this game a little bit for people that aren't super familiar with it because I don't know of anything else that's quite like this game. It's fascinating both because of what it is and because of how well it works. So this is a game that sort of alternates its time between a god sim in which you're fighting off bad guys and helping your villagers build up their towns, and also a side-scrolling platform action game where you're playing as a sort of avatar who's um, assuming the role of a swordsman statue who's going around and taking out enemies and making the places safer so that the townspeople can start developing there. Both of the experiences taken on their own have a lot of flaws. Like, I think that the platforming is a little bit clunky. I think it absolutely does what it needs to do. It's very playable. It's just not, you know, like as silky smooth as like a Mario or something like that. But I mean, but few things are. It's not really trying to be that kind of platform game. No, I would put this more on the side of something like a Castlevania. Maybe I shouldn't have let off with my quasi-flaw about it, because I really did enjoy the platforming a lot. I think in general the platforming levels are really strong and they're all really unique from each other. Basically, the way this game sort of works is that you are this god figure. The master in the English version, I think you're literally just called god in the Japanese version. They literally call you god and they literally call the bad person or deity, whatever, Satan, which all that got scrubbed, obviously, when it came over to America. You move your sky palace to one area of the map. The map is divided into several different regions that each have their own sort of biome going on and their own community of people. The evil force has taken over all of this world. The first thing you do is go down as your warrior avatar, and you go through a platforming level where you fight monsters, and you defeat some kind of big monster at the end. And that frees that area from the grip of evil and allows people to start settling there again. And that's the point at which the game turns into its god game city builder mode, which is pretty simple. You can direct which direction your people will build their town in. You can use various miracles, literal acts of God, to kind of clear out things like desert and swamps so that the people can build there. And you also have direct control of your your little angel helper at this point, where you can fly around and shoot monsters that are trying to disrupt your people being able to do what they're doing. You basically assist your followers as they go about expanding their town and sealing off the monster gates that allow these monsters to come out of them. They will give you offerings, which can range from just usable items, upgrades for your angels' abilities, to things that are unique to each area. Uh, There's one area where the people have discovered how to build bridges, and you need to take that skill and give it to another area so that those people can cross rivers and expand their town further. And that aspect, it becomes a little, little bit like wanting more, which is yeah, a, a, a little pretty, bit where you need you know, to figure out what thing from which place right? you need to give to another place so that 
the people there can proceed. And then at the end, once you've helped an area build itself up to the fullest, seal all of its monster gates, there's a second side-scrolling action platform level where you fight the evil being that's in control of that area as a whole. Yeah, that's pretty much the loop. You go into a, a new area, you fight, you help people develop the town, you direct the townsfolk. Once the town is more or less completed, they'll discover the second dungeon of that area. Rinse, repeat, occasionally going back to other towns with gifts from towns that you will encounter later on help those people out in a way. Like there's one point where all of the people in one town suddenly just become very, very angry with each other and you learn that people in a town in the future will discover music. Once you have the discovery of music, you bring that back to the first town and this makes everybody happy. It's a really neat loop, but it is all very linear and rigid. The game kind of gives you the feeling of like, oh, I'm going back and doing this and maybe this was an optional thing. But when you really dig into it, you realize, no, this is actually pretty linear progression. And there's not really anything in terms of like optional side quests or anything like that. You know, that being said, though, I do think that when I was playing the game, I was pretty frequently just surprised by cool little developments that would happen along this kind of linear path. There's little bits of really neat storytelling that get done in this. Like, for example, there's one town where when you first start developing it, a couple of your followers will come and sort of pray to you to get their rowdy son to calm down. And then later on, after this town is developed to a certain point, those same people will come back and be like, oh, no, our son has run away. Will you please find him and give him this loaf of, of home-baked bread that we made. You can see the kid, you know, often like another part of the map. If you give him the bread, he'll come back and tell his parents that he didn't mean to run away. He just sort of got lost when he was looking for the source of the big ecological problem in that area. That's how you were sort of signposted for how to free that area from the problems that it's Yeah, having. it almost makes you think if maybe the folks who made games like Where the Water Tastes Like Wine got a little bit of inspiration from something like this. Because as you do go through the game, you experience these little stories of certain townspeople. There was one point in which a character dies and it made me think, oh, did the character die because I didn't get through the dungeon fast enough? Is it because like I, I had a game over in that dungeon and I had to start again? Ultimately, yeah, it wasn't because of that. It was just because that's the way the story plays out. But on the subject of death and dying, in terms of how death works and how game overs work in this game, you are supposed to be a god. So it would be kind of silly if you could just end up at a game over and like, oh, you died, God. That sucks for us. So instead, the penalty for dying is just having to play the level over again. The conceit is that you need to rest up. I do like that. You're supposed to be God, so you can only get so defeated in the course of things. And again, you know, it kind of helps make the experience very playable, very easy to get through. As a grown adult, I only have so much time to play games. It was kind of nice actually getting to experience a Super Nintendo game that I could see through to its completion in just a matter of hours. I really, really liked that. On the other hand, it does mean that there's not much replayability here. If the experience as a whole is expansive enough and meaningful enough, I don't know that replayability is necessarily a thing that you always need from a game like this. It's funny, there's not much to this game, but also a lot to this game at the same time somehow. And I think it's like surprisingly thoughtful treatment of the idea of like, the relationship between a god and uh, subjects or people. But did you have anything else to say 
about the game. For the platforming parts of the game, there is a kind of superfluous magic element where you can cast spells. Uh, I actually ended up playing through the entire game, never engaging with that stuff at all. So one of the big systems in this is that your people will give you offerings. One thing I didn't realize until probably way later in the game than I should have was that you then have to go into another menu to accept those offerings to actually get them in your inventory. That's not communicated that well, uh, and that's a little annoying. It is a game that you probably want a manual to refer to, but I will say for all of the systems involved, it is surprisingly easy to understand most of them. Like When you think about this in comparison to something like Draken. This game, I think, does a better job of really kind of laying out the scope of what you can do with the game and what all of its different functions are supposed to let you do. See also Populous. Yes, and on that note, I think maybe we can look at trying to rank this, which we got Draken and Populous at uh, 8 and 9, respectively, and this is way better than either of those games. My impulse would say that this is probably top three game so we got our two cream of the crop shooters up here at two and three with uh un squadron and uh darius twin i definitely think i could put this above darius twin i felt really good about the whole experience with act razor and it left me very satisfied un squadron so much fun it's got so much character to it but i mean so does act razor i feel like these two are really going to be fighting it out here for number two which one would you rather go back to i mean i will say straight up that i actually intend to go back and finish act razor like i want to do that which my time with un squadron didn't make me quite as enthusiastic about hopping right into that un squadron doesn't feel like a game i'm i'm likely to ever be able to finish Maybe ActRaiser feels more approachable in that way. The other thing that I think is true is that even though UN Squadron is a very unique shooter with some really cool, interesting stuff going on in it, it is not, I think, quite as much of an original creation as ActRaiser is. Like, I, I genuinely struggle to think of anything else that really is even, like, trying to do what ActRaiser is doing. Yeah, ActRaiser really is something that is one of a kind. Mashing up two genres in this way feels like a really cool idea, and I'm surprised that more games haven't tried to do something like this, with like a very distinct building phase and a very distinct action phase. So ActRacer, our new number two? Is that... That sounds right to me. All right, so we've got one more game to discuss. Uh, I'm sure this is going to be a I'm sure this is going to be a short discussion where we don't have much to say. This has already been a really long episode. Don't worry, we'll just breeze through this next yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, right. Final Fantasy 2. So we are going to call it Final Fantasy 2. Um, in case you are not familiar with the Final Fantasy series and don't understand why we would need to make that explanation, so here's kind of how that whole thing broke down. The original Final Fantasy came out in 1987 for the NES and for the Famicom. came out earlier on the Famicom. 
the Famicom in Japan also got Final Fantasy II in 1988 and Final Fantasy III in 1990. Those games did not get localized to North America or to Europe, as far as I know. They didn't get localized in English, full stop, in their original versions, yeah. Yeah, so we didn't get Final Fantasy II uh, in any official capacity until 2003's Final Fantasy Origins came out on the PlayStation, which had Final Fantasy I and II. And then we didn't get Final Fantasy III until a full-on remake for the DS came out in 2006. We just got Final Fantasy IV, which they just decided to rename Final Fantasy II. And then we'll talk about the other Final Fantasies when we get there. (laughs) Developed and published by Square, or um, Squaresoft, which was the North American subsidiary that was established in 1989. This is pre-Square and Enix merging to become Square Enix. Yeah, this this is like a full decade prior to that, so... Yeah, yeah, that didn't happen until 2003. But anyway, so Final Fantasy 2. This is a pretty great game, guys. It's um, a pretty great game. So I have a slightly interesting history with this, because this was not the first Final Fantasy game I played. Uh, when I was a, a child, I didn't really know about this genre of game at all. Until I made a friend who had a Super Nintendo, which I did not have, and he had a game called Final Fantasy Mystic Quest, which we'll eventually talk about. So I played that. I loved it. Pretty soon after that, uh, Final Fantasy III, a.k.a. Final Fantasy VI in Japan, came out, and I became just ravenously obsessed with that. Even though I did play some of Final Fantasy II, I never had access to it the same way that I had to some of these other games. So I don't have nearly as extensive a history with it. I really wish I had, because it is a great game, and I think holds up extremely well today. I did not play it back when it first came out on the Super Nintendo. I played it much later. A lot later of a convert to to RPGs than me, I think. Right? I was, because they just seemed completely incomprehensible to me back when I was a kid. Even something like The Legend of Zelda, the original one on the NES, sort of intimidated me to a point where I never tried really engaging with those outside of watching my friends play them. After I played Final Fantasy X, I think I was like, I need to go back and play these older Final Fantasy games. And I started with Final Fantasy Origins, which I played through a good amount of, but there's just such a huge difference between the original Final Fantasy and Final Fantasy 2. It's very D&D inspired, much more steeped in like the traditions of much older RPGs. One of those things I feel like is that Final Fantasy gives you character classes to pick from the start, but you're really like naming the characters and any sort of personality that you're associating with them is completely coming from you. Whereas in Final Fantasy 2, these characters are... It's hard for me to say well-written because I think a lot of these fall into a lot of tropes and these weren't always very well localized either, but they were always a lot of fun and they had a lot of personality. They definitely did. I have played a little bit of various versions of the Final Fantasy 2 and 3, the the Famicom games, and the gulf in difference between those games and what this game is doing on like a story and presentation level is is tremendous like it cannot be overstated the way that you know this genre would be going forward i think owes a tremendous amount to this game specifically you can see it right from the start in this game where you start off with the very dramatic shots of these airships doing a mode 7 fly over the world map and you intercut flashbacks with what's going on on the ship using the battle interface for a storytelling sequence before you even get access to the actual combat system you're introduced to all these characters and this situation that's sort of in the middle of happening 
very dramatic sort of rapid fire series of events right at the beginning of this game. It's really engaging and it really kind of brings you into its story. You know, I, I criticize the writing a little bit, but I mean, it's it's not bad. Your primary character throughout the entire adventure is a knight named Cecil, who is a knight under an army that has started doing some really bad things. We're dropped into the middle of like, oh, he's just bombed an entire village, but kind of didn't know that that's what he was going to do. And Yeah, right. That's like the first thing that really happens in this game, basically. You know, like, it, it really wants to kick off quickly with a better story, maybe shows us like, why was a guy like Cecil even in this army in the first place? But that's okay, because there's still so many places that we're going to go. Later games would figure out ways to kind of modulate this storytelling to give it better build up. But even here, even though there are some really sudden swerves happening, like within like the first hour of the game, there are still some really good effective moments, even within that, where it kind of manages to slow down for a second and give you a little bit of character interaction that really does add to getting you engaged with these people. And this game introduced a lot of, of stuff that would kind of go on to define this series in a lot of ways, both in terms of pacing that we're talking about, but also in terms of gameplay. This is the game that introduced the very famous active time battle system, where everyone's actions are governed by a meter that builds up at the bottom of the screen. Uh, this game's a little weird in that it doesn't actually show you that meter, it does lead to this this interesting rhythm to the combat that's not quite turn-based, but definitely isn't action combat. Um, interesting note about that, actually. Apparently, they came up with that concept for the, the active time system after watching a bunch of Formula One racing. We talked about, you know, the, the English translation for this isn't fantastic. Like, it's functional, but it's really awkward sounding in some places. But it also gave us some classic lines like, you spoony bard. It which did is give us you spoony bard, fantastic. which is a thing that will live on the internet forever, I think. As um, it should. I really like all the characters, well, most of the characters in this. I always found it kind of interesting knowing that like, okay, the party is going to be capped at five. This game doesn't seem to want to give me the ability to swap out party members. So whenever somebody new would show up, who's likely to become a member of my party, it'd be like, okay, what kind of twist is the story going to throw at me to get rid of one of these guys? But there's some just really cool character moments in there too. Something that still sticks out in my mind is the scene in which Cecil has his transformation from the dark knight to the paladin in which he's got to actually fight himself many of the people who worked on this game had worked on previous final fantasies but one person who was quite new to the team on this was the the person who actually wrote the scenario for this was somebody with a theater background and I think that you can feel the hand of somebody with a, a, a really clear eye for dramatic stakes and, and dramatic arcs in this. That makes a lot of sense. The writing does kind of feel more like a stage play than something you would see in a movie. We will forgive certain kinds of writing, you know, on the stage just because of the nature of the stage and kind of needing to exposit. The staginess actually works in this game's favor because it is still using a very abstracted style with little kind of squashed character designs and the transitions from battle to scenes with characters talking. I think that that's, that's a good way for this to be presented, and I think it, it lets the drama sort of come through in a really effective way. <laughs>
We also, I think, do need to talk about this game's soundtrack, which is phenomenal. This is the best soundtrack we've heard on the Super Nintendo so far, I think, personally. Just within the first few hours of the game, how many different kind of moods this this soundtrack by Nobuo Uematsu is able to strike. I'll apologize right now for not playing more music from the game in the podcast, but we are this this is probably already coming up on our longest episode ever. Oh, this is for sure our longest episode, yeah. So there's just a lot to say about these games. There are things about this game that I know other games in both this series and just this genre would would later refine and do better. There are games that would let you switch party members or would have more involved character creation and, and leveling systems. I wish this game let you see the new stats that a new piece of equipment was going to put on you before you equipped it. There are a lot of things like that, but that doesn't take away from the fact that this game is still great. It's still really fun and really playable. Is it time to rank it? Where do we put this thing? I could start by saying Draken's the other RPG on this, but I mean, honestly, like this isn't even in the same league no, as Draken. No, it's not, yeah. I'm, I'm just going to go right up to ActRaiser. Is this game better or worse than ActRaiser? I would probably say I think this game is better than ActRaiser. Just because I think that for as unique and and impressive as ActRaiser is, it just can't be overstated how effective Final Fantasy II is at bringing you in and making this, this genre of game approachable and, and interesting. I would probably say I think this is better, but I could hear it. I, I, I'm here for an argument that ActRaiser is a better game than this. What do you think? Honestly, I don't think I'm the one to make that argument. I'm kind of with you. As somebody who went back to these older Final Fantasy games a lot later, I didn't realize that even these early games were so character-driven. I think this goes above ActRaiser, and so now, is this game better than Super Mario World? I think that, you know, as great as Super Mario World is, I, I think that, that Final Fantasy II maybe does so much to kind of evolve its genre of game that it may actually be something that may actually be be more impressive to me than mario world final fantasy 2 definitely raised the bar for if not the kinds of stories you can tell in games the way that they're presented super mario world on the other hand obviously isn't trying to tell much of a story it's a pure sort of like gameplay and like aesthetic yeah i think the thing with super mario world versus final fantasy 2 is final fantasy 2 does demand a certain amount of learning the mechanics where like super mario world almost anyone can just pick up and play almost immediately final fantasy 2 i think does a good job of presenting all of its mechanics in a way that's a lot more transparent than its predecessor final fantasy was by a long shot so okay there here's the thing there are actually arguments i can make against final fantasy 2 being as effective as it could be at being sort of this standard bearer for its for its genre of games the way that Mario World is for for platformers but there are all arguments that require bringing in knowledge of games that came later I think it can be really easy to sort of you know turn up your nose at some of the more contemporary final fantasies that have come out just because of the way that they're presented Final Fantasy 2's story feels timeless in a way that maybe like a Final Fantasy 7's or Final Fantasy 10's doesn't. For me, like, my number one personally is always going to be Super Mario World. It's always just something I can just jump in and play immediately. But on the other hand, like Final Fantasy 2, it's a genre that maybe not everybody is going to want to spend the time to get into and to learn. I think it, it does enough to kind of reach out to those people to say, no, no, you can do this. You can play a game like this, too. 
This game could have easily been my intro to this type of game very easily. Chances are, if you were playing this game on the Super Nintendo in 1991, this might really easily have been the very first uh, RPG of any kind you had ever seen. So, you know, that's great. Like, it's great to have this be, like, your first experience with that kind of thing. Do you think that this game belongs above Super Mario World? Is that is that your opinion? I think it's neck and neck, but probably probably Super Mario World still goes just yeah. above this. Just because, as I'm talking about this, God, this is so tough. This game moves a lot further forward in terms of, like, its ambition and scope from the the older Final Fantasy games, then Mario World moves forward from Mario 3. Mario 3 didn't need to move... Like, I would definitely not recommend Final Fantasy in its original form. I would say, like, maybe try the Final Fantasy Origins version where they tweaked a lot of stuff to make the game more approachable. That's true. I mean, like, we're talking about really different scales of where these series were at as far as, like, development of their vision. That's true. That's not really fair either, actually, now that you put it like that. This is hard to do, but I do think... I think this might be the best game on the Super Nintendo right now. The one thing that just keeps nagging at me, though, is just the accessibility of Super Mario World. But also, counterpoint, there are people that can't really do platform games. For for some folks, Final Fantasy would actually be the more accessible game, because it's more about reading and planning and making decisions about kind of what you're going to do with moment-to-moment in these battles than it is about mechanical skill. You've got a really good point there. I think when I tend to think of accessibility, I'm maybe more thinking like in terms of cognitive and, and mental ability than in, in terms of physical ability. And that's a good point. All, all right. If, if, if you, Emmy Zero, truly believe in your heart of hearts that this is a better game than Super Mario World, I will put this as our new number one. I got it. Hmm. Do we do we need to leave this on a cliffhanger? Do we need to like discuss this more off mic? You know, I think that this might be the first time that yes, because I think we're just going to sit here doing this like in a loop. Okay, you know what? I think that's what we're going to do. I think we're going to leave this one on a cliffhanger. We've talked about Final Fantasy 2, so we will open the next episode telling you guys where Final Fantasy 2 is going to end up. I feel kind of bad having to do things like that, but this is an emergency. It's a special situation. We'll find Oh, wait a minute. Oh my god, do we have a new thing for Newsy to do? I think we do, actually. Looks like Steampunk Link and ME Zero are in quite the pickle. Will Super Mario World continue to reign supreme? Or will it be dethroned by Final Fantasy 2? Is Final Fantasy 2 fated to be number 2? Or has Mario finally met his better? Listen to the next episode of Snescapades to find out. Well, uh, thank you all so much for listening to what's probably still a very long episode, even after I get done editing it. Um, yeah, this this one, man, this this was tougher than I could have ever thought. Yeah, same. Join us next time, folks. We'll figure this thing out. Next time, not only will you find out about where Final Fantasy II is going, but we're also going to talk about Super Ghouls and Ghosts, RPM, Radical Psycho Machine Racing, Super Tennis, and True Golf Classics. Um, 
I cannot pronounce the name of that country club. I will look that up. So also look forward to me learning how to pronounce the country club that this golf game is named after. Yeah. In the next episode also. Oh my goodness, you guys, this has all gone completely off the rails. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure we'll have just as much to say about those games as we did yeah, about these absolutely. ones. All right. Well, until next time, everyone, thank you so much. I'm Steampunk Link. I am Emmy Zero. <laughs> play it loud. Our intro-outro song is How Now Brown Cow by Technoaxe, who very generously offers a ton of great music for free and royalty-free at technoaxe.com. For more of our content, check out honestpiranha.com. Thanks for listening.